1863, a recent Scottish immigrant was wandering through the stark and desolate area above Lake Utopia, looking for rocks to build a fireplace with when he made an astonishing discovery. When he wiped a thick layer of moss off of a large, flat stone, he discovered that carved upon it was an intricately detailed human face. Speculation that it was an ancient Egyptian artifact quickly spread. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. According to the Daily Telegraph newspaper, the man, a mason named James Laney, brought home the 22-inch stone with a strange face carved on it, which weighed 50 pounds, but his wife refused to allow it to remain, saying that it glowered at her. Decades later, his daughter recalled, Father took it to town. A friend of his got it and took it to the museum. He took it because Mother did not want it in the house. (laughs) Almost immediately, the mysterious carving, known as the Lake Utopia Medallion, caused a sensation in the nearby big city of St. John. On February 18, 1863, the Morning Freeman newspaper wrote, On the precise character of the face, there is much question. The facial lines are not those of the indigenous people of the present day and resemble much more the lines of Assyrian or Egyptian profiles as represented in ancient sculpture. The newspaper went on to wonder if other remains of the civilized people who once inhabited this continent may be found there. Just to clarify, as you may have guessed, that newspaper didn't actually say indigenous people there when I substituted in the word to avoid any confusion with a certain large country in Asia. The St. Croix Courier newspaper, meanwhile, was a bit more circumspect, but it came to the same curious conclusion, writing. It seems such a work could not be done without metal tools, yet the early French pioneers of Acadia found no metal tools in use amongst the natives. Unless the carving is of recent date, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that it is a relic of either an extinct people or of a prehistoric settlement of Europeans here. Several scientists accompanied James Laney back to where he found it. It had been propped up on the edge of a cliff at the entrance to a sharp, rocky mountainous region which naturalist William F. Ganong later described as a somewhat uncanny, repellent, and dangerous-looking place. The area had red columns of granite rising up into the sky, which Ganong remarked resembled an ancient altar temple. The largest column of all was named Cleopatra's Needle, which E.J. Russell described for the Canadian Illustrated News as containing not less than 100 tons of granite without a flaw, fit to form the sarcophagus for a president of the United States or a prime minister of the Dominion of Canada. They found the spot where the medallion was discovered covered in a thick, 
slow-growing moss and lichens. It was clearly quite old, and the particular type of wear on it would be difficult to fake. The general consensus of the scientists then, and remains today, that the Lake Utopia medallion is genuine. The stone itself was granulate, which is one of the hardest rocks to work, bearing a crystalline structure. Even a highly skilled craftsperson, using the finest metal tools available, would have struggled at that time to carve such an intricately detailed face. Upon closer inspection, the wear on it from the rain falling on the upturned face indicated that it was several hundreds of years old. Not several thousand, as had been first suggested. Everyone was at a loss as to who would have dedicated the enormous amount of work, time, and energy into carving the stone, and perhaps most mysteriously, why? The Smithsonian Institution actually tried to get a hold of the stone to put in the United States National Museum, but by then it was safely in the hands of the New Brunswick Museum, where it remains today. The news of the mystery spread as far away as England, though the London press wasn't quite as keen to indulge in speculation about ancient peoples as the New Brunswickers were. The London Illustrated News wrote that July that when it was shown to the indigenous who frequent the neighborhood, they at once pronounced it to be the portrait of a chief and said it was very likely the chief himself was buried near the spot. They thought it was many hundreds of years old. It was unclear who, if anyone, that London newspaper interviewed about that, because the medallion was found on a flat, rocky cliffside outcrop, a location that would make burying someone there all but impossible. The newspaper went on to note Pesco Mukati had a very high reputation for being talented artists, saying, Passamaquoddies are very skillful in their representation of animals. We have seen some very beautiful specimens. These figures would do credit to any professional artist today. While it was true that Pescodu Makati had lived around the lake they called Miskiquagum for centuries, they themselves were also perplexed by the mysterious stone. St. John historian Clarence Ward reported in 1861, the Passamaquoddy who have seen it are quite at a loss to account for the fashion and the quantity of hair represented on the head, since from time immemorial it was customary for them to shave or pluck out all of their hair with the exception of the scalp lock. The hair was so ubiquitous that in 1914, Charlotte County historian James Vroom flatly stated, for a Passamaquoddy with the top of his head shaved, with a long hair cut off so squarely, is quite out of the range of imagination. The London press did, however, note that about 20 miles away from where it had been found had been the site of a short-lived French village in 1604, which was actually the first European colony in all of North America. Other suggestions of who the face depicted stretch credulity. Geologist Dr. A. Leith Adams recalled that when a drawing of this sculpture was displayed at the Boston Natural History Society, 
some members pronounced it a very modern imposition and asserted it to be a likeness of the great George Washington. Over the years, more hypotheses have been suggested which were also less than credible, from Egyptians to Phoenicians and even to aliens. Even if we disregard some of the more dramatic suggestions, like aliens visiting Lake Utopia, New Brunswick to carve a face in a rock, this is after all backyard history, not backyard aliens, the more plausible suggestions to who the mysterious carver may have been are still rather flawed, though. It would be exceptionally unusual, stylistically speaking, to be an indigenous work, Pescumukadi or otherwise. The Pescumukwadi artwork the London newspaper spoke highly of consisted of patterns on familiar animals cut into stone. To shape such an unusually hard type of stone as the Lake Utopia medallion out of flint tools, and then later to polish the profile of the face would be, while not impossible, would have been difficult and time-consuming beyond the realms of most people's patience. Vikings are another oft-suggested possibility. It wouldn't have been impossible for a Norse visitor to carve the head, but it may have been impossible, stylistically speaking again, for a Viking carver to have not surrounded the stone with runes explaining what it meant and crediting the artist who made it. The Vikings were remarkably consistent in their carving styles, and this just plain isn't a good fit for how they carved things. In 1921, Dr. William F. Ganong, the finest historian New Brunswick ever produced, delved into the mystery with his typical obsessiveness, poring over every existing document, even peripherally associated with the Lake Utopia medallion, and interviewing anyone still alive who had encountered it. He obtained a fragment of the stone and two other fragments of similar stone, one from Lake Utopia, and one from St. Croix Island. He sent these to Dr. William McGuinness of the Geological Survey of Canada to be tested. McGuinness declared that all three rock samples came from a particular geological formation of granite belt that spanned from Lake Utopia to St. Croix Island. So this at the very least confirms a local origin as opposed to say Egypt or, you know, aliens. McGuinness, however, wrote that all three are the same and may come from the same mass. He went further and declared that, I should say that the medallion sample and the St. Croix Island sample are the same. St. Croix Island is a tiny island in New Brunswick on the main border, and it is the site of the first European colony since the Vikings. In 1604, 75 French colonists, including the explorer Samuel de Champlain, arrived to settle there. According to colonist Marc Lescarbeau, who joined the settlement in its second year, it contained numerous joiners, carpenters, locksmiths, masons, and stonecutters amongst its members. There is evidence that these masons and stonecutters went a bit wild. They carved some intricate designs all over their buildings. When the British destroyed that French colony in 1616, they tried to completely erase it from existence 
in the words of a minister who accompanied the expedition. Even making use of pick and chisel upon massive stones, on which were cut the names of captains and fleur-de-lis. Those French masons and stonecutters also carved intricate designs into rocks out of nature. In 1827, quite a stir arose in Nova Scotia when a large and intricately carved compass, marked with the year 1606, was found carved in Granville Mountain, near Port Royal in the Annapolis Royal Region. It seems that one unnamed and forgotten member of that French expedition to settle in North America 418 years ago was someone who was not only capable, but more than willing to spend a great deal of time making elaborate stone carvings for no obvious purpose. Perhaps it was art for art's sake. Or perhaps it was simply out of boredom. It seems kind of Strange to suggest that a mysterious historic find was created for no purpose but to avail that quintessentially human feeling of boredom, but in this case, it does seem to fit. After all, boredom was something that the French had in spades in that first winter on St. Croix Island. Their first experience with the Canadian winter was long and brutal. Ganong described it as a dreary winter of enforced inactivity, which in turn suggests the idea that the medallion was probably carved as a means of passing the too abundant time by someone competent in stone cutting and imbued with an impulse towards artwork. Ganong declared that the origins indicated that the head had meaning, but it didn't have any resemblance to either conventional religious portraits or royal insignia. He offered that it seemed to be a complimentary representation of someone who the carver respected, and that the curious hairstyle was the long locks worn by fashionable Frenchmen of that time. He goes on to suggest that it might be Champlain. This is tantalizing, because there's actually no contemporary portraits of Samuel de Champlain which were made while he was alive, and we don't actually know what he looks like. Well, there was one, but it was the self-portrait that Champlain had doodled of himself in the margins of a letter. I'm not claiming to be an art critic here, but uh, it's basically a stick figure. So perhaps the medallion is actually the only portrait of that important early explorer of Canada. Or perhaps it's a tribute to one of the carver's 35 comrades who died that winter. Perhaps it's even a self-portrait of the carver himself. No great man, but a normal everyday person who's otherwise completely forgotten to history. As for how it got 25 kilometers from St. Croix Island to Lake Utopia, Ganong offers suggestions for that as well. He offers that while carrying the 50-pound medallion overland would have been hard for the French to do, it would have been easy to move for the Pescumucati people with their fast canoes and their keen knowledge of the waterways linking these areas. Ganong suggests they may have found it after the French abandoned the St. Croix settlement after that harrowing first winter to move to Port Royal, Nova Scotia. 
He suggests that the Pescamukhati left it there not as a grave marker, but as a votive offering to the spirits of Porcupine Mountain, above Lake Utopia. Early settlers remarked many times at the Pascamukati practice of leaving votive offerings to the spirits of places which were important to them. And the ridge of Porcupine Mountain, rising high above Lake Utopia, was an unusual-looking place. When Ganong wrote in 1921, Porcupine Mountain still had a reputation he described as a somewhat uncanny, repellent, and dangerous-looking place. Earlier, however, it was even more spooky and mysterious. It had this large, flat, red granite slab. And rising above it was several massive granite pillars just towering up into the sky, the largest of which was nicknamed Cleopatra's Needle. Historian Clarence Ward called it a curious structure resembling an altar built with large slabs of granite. Alan Jack who himself went in person with James Laney, who had found the medallion, to see the exact spot where it was found for himself, wrote that there is a somewhat singular monument standing on the summit of a hill near the canal, consisting of a large oval or rounded stone weighing estimate 7,500 weight, laying in three vertical stone columns from 10 inches to one foot in height, firmly stuck into the ground. This strange area was generally disliked by European settlers who avoided it. In 1878, a group of locals assembled and combined efforts to tear down the pillars, throwing them into Lake Utopia in what Ganong called an idiotic whim. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.